Let's start with some tough love, all right? You two suck. Say my name. That's what the kids call Prissy guy with the mustache. You're listening to Inside the Gillivers talking all things Breaking Bad, El Camino, and Better Call Saul. Brought to you by Stewart Travel Guitars. See the incredible stowaway travel guitar at stewartguitars.com. Also brought to you by Idea Bench, makers of hot rod inspired pedal boards and pedal board accessories at ideabench.com. Microphones for Inside the Gillivers are brought to you by Rode Microphones. Now, please welcome your hosts, Tom Schnauz and Eric Broadbent. It's showtime, folks. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to episode two of Inside the Gilliverse, talking all things Breaking Bad, El Camino, and Better Call Saul. My name is Eric Broadbent, and it comes with extreme pleasure to once again uh, welcome my co-host from writer, producer, director, 2020, 2020, I guess we could say it that way, Emmy Award nominee, Mr. Tom Schnauz. Tom, how are you? I'm doing great. Thank you, Eric. It's so great to be here, and uh, I am very excited a very special guest. I have rubber mats on the floor prepared for today. My good friend, Michael Mando. Welcome, Michael. Hi, guys. Thank you so much for having me. That was a great uh, musical intro. And uh, I like that little intro, Thomas. You got me all excited. <laughs> I wish I could take credit for that intro. That's all, Eric. Um, and actually, one of our one of our chat viewers right now too. That sexy voice that you heard there was Paul Sura. So a big big hats off to Paul Sura, who's a radio uh, professional um, and also a major fan of the uh, of the Gilliverse. Oh, great, great, great! So here we are. Here we are. Started with all these people that are live, and we can and this could go anywhere, right? We can we can talk about anything mm-hmm. and everything. That's right. And we you had, could, we you had could a, be naked by the end of this broadcast. Well, this is what I'm, you know, I'm, I'm hoping. I'm hoping it's the only way to end this. This is going to be wild. Well, this is all right. be wild. we're just about we're just this close to sixteen thousand subscribers. So I'm not trying to I'm not trying to you know say anything. But if Michael was if anyone gets naked, we might hit sixteen thousand tonight. Oh really? Yeah. But if I get naked, you I've might got, drop to zero. I've got, I've got a special <laughs> guest that 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 a lot of people like. I've got a special guest right here. Okay. Some people know who this guy is. Some people do. Some people don't. And then I've got That's I've got your, another uh, guest. Your Far Cry. Uh... Let me do yeah, that again. Yeah, yeah. Do that again. I want to see it again on the screen. I'm going to go to a bigger screen. I've got a we little, didn't get it. Bring it up higher. He he wants to he wants to join the. Oh, excellent. But I've got another guest. I'll show you guys later down the um later down in the podcast. I had a gift from this gentleman. I wasn't going to start with this, but since we're improvising, um, this guy, his name is Pierre Francois in Brazil. He wrote me this beautiful letter and sent me this beautiful sculpture of uh, Nacho in this amazing box. I mean, really, really impressive stuff. And I promised him I was going to post it and, and um, share it with the world. And I, you know, I had gone through a couple of things in the past few weeks and didn't have a chance so I'm gonna I'm gonna share it with you guys in in about ten minutes. Great. It's inside here. It's a it's a statue wow, that this gentleman from Brazil built. And it's a, it's really, really he's really talented. Well, I want to say something real quick about it. nice emails. I told I told Tom about this as well too, and Tom told me a lot about you. I mean, you know, just that you're such such a kind spirit. And the email that you sent me back after Tom introduced you to me. I honestly I've never received an email with just where you could feel emotion and just kindness in an email. And I read it two or three times, and first of all, I was blown away. And then I read it, I'm not going to lie, as if Nacho was reading it to me. And so the, 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 if you take that email that you Why sent me... Why would you do that? I don't know. I'm just picturing you, right? And all of a sudden, I'm like, 
Okay, now this is now this is creepy. But it was very nice yeah. of you. It was very very kind. But I think because as we told you off the air, this this show on a Friday night was normally and it still will be in the future uh, a guitar and a, a music uh, you know focused uh, show. You've got some incredible music out there, and I'd like to start about talking about that. You've got the uh, the the big single, the wild one out there, and Sandra's going to share some links here tonight to all of your profiles, including your YouTube channel and that song. But let's talk about some of some of your music. I mean, you've got a couple hundred, two or three hundred songs you've written over the years, and this new song that's out was um, not re- was intended to be recorded the way it was. Let, let's talk about that process, and you can kind of talk about your studio here and and uh, and how it all came to be. <clears throat> Uh, how did I get into the? How did I get to recording music? Is that the question? Well, maybe um, like you've been the amount of songs you've done, which is astronomical. But then how uh, recording this new uh, uh, EP and it happened. So uh, yeah, and, and but, how but, many it, how many of those songs are about me, Michael? Uh, <laughs> all of them, all of them. The happy ones and the sad ones and the angry ones, Thomas. They're all about you. But I, I've been writing music my whole life. I, I, I did not grow up wanting to be an actor. It was never like a dream of mine. I got into the music and in, in the film theater i started in theater in my kind of mid-20s that's the first time i ever you know like spoke a piece of text that wasn't you know my own um but um so music is different though i've been involved with music my whole life i've been loving music listening to music writing music my whole life and um i was in in new york i was meeting with this with this lady and she was asking me what was she was trying to find out like uh she was sort of like a publicist and she was trying to ask me what were my hobbies and stuff. And I told her that I like music. And she said, why don't you come over to L.A. and um, I'll introduce you to my husband. He's a, he's a great guitarist. So long story short, I go to L.A. I go to their house. I'm waiting in the basement. And I go in the basement. And this guy, this gentleman has about 50 guitars. And I'm talking like some of the most beautiful, breathtaking guitars I've ever seen in my life. And in that corner, there's a guitar that has a weird shape with an arrow on it. And it's the color purple. (laughs) And I'm just staring at it like, what is this guitar doing here? So he comes down. His name is Michael Fishherring. And I ask him about it. And he goes, oh, yeah, it's his. I go, this is Prince's guitar. He goes, yes. I go, do you know Prince? He goes, I've been touring with Prince for 10 years. I go, what? He goes, yeah, I I tour with Prince and, 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 and all these other artists. I go, holy smoke. So I got I got the first person I ever show music to is this guy. We record a song in his basement. And the guy who shows up about 10 minutes later is Madonna's pianist. So I'm with Madonna's pianist and Prince's guitarist showing them for the first time in my life music. This is two years ago. We record the song. That weekend, I'm with a Canadian friend of mine called named Craig Olesnik who used to be uh, the lead in The Listener on CTV. I don't know if you remember. And I'm, I'm on exactly this laptop here, and my earphones weren't working. And I want Craig to hear the song that I just recorded with Prince's guitarist. But the earphones don't work. So we're in a patio in L.A. at this place called Coral Tree in Brentwood. And I press play, and the ladies on my right are Better Call Saul fans. I, you know, I, w- they said hello when we walked in and they're sort of sneaking, uh, you know, putting an ear to it and listening to it. And she says, I, I really like it. You should meet my husband. He's a producer. She gives me her husband's card. I forget about it. One day, I got nothing to do in LA. I call him, set up an appointment. The night before, I'm watching a romantic comedy. And in the romantic comedy, the gentleman tells the girl 
what was the, the the number one hit song the day you were born? And she tells him the, the, the song. And I thought, that's pretty interesting. So I Google the number one hit song the day I was born. The next morning, I drive to this producer's uh, house. I use his, his restroom, and he's got a, a golden disc of We Are the World, Michael Jackson and Quincy Jones. And I'm thinking, you know, where the fuck am I? Here's the first <laughs> fuck for you, Eric. Okay. So I walk out. I, I wait for him in the studio, and there's a Grammy on his, on his uh, speakers. So when he walks out, he walks out, his name is Val Garay, and I ask him, I say, Val, what's the uh, Grammy for? And you're not going to believe this, but he produced the number one hit song, The Day I Was Born, uh, Betty Davis's Eyes. Kim and that, th- those, those two encounters were really the beginning of me going, maybe, maybe I, should, I, I should do something, you know, maybe these little signs mean something. And that's kind of how I got into acting, too. I, I, it was like a series of events that you pay attention to and you listen to your intuition and you go something says go right i don't know what but I, i'm gonna try it and then long story short i end up coming to montreal and it gets even crazier but i call his studio to test out a mic i i wasn't sure what mic to record in and i call this studio called studio piccolo in montreal to test the mic and when i show up there they're, they happen to be fans of the work that we've done, including Better Call Saul. So we get a great rapport with them. But I f- and, and they propose to play on the, on the music that, I'm, that I've got. They like it. They dig it. They want to they play on it. I say, sure. They start playing, and I'm blown away. And I find out that they've got to go a um, couple of days after they're playing because they're Celine Dion's musicians. Oh, wow. <laughs> so all the guys, the guys playing the guitar, the drums, the bass are all Celine's musicians. And I was initially supposed to record at her studios. I ended up recording at home, but I still was lucky enough to get them to jam on the first three songs. So they're they're on they're on they're all over the the next two as well. So that was that was the weird encounter that got me into music, and and now I'm kind of hooked, and and um, I'm so excited to share the rest of it. Well, thank you for that story because now I feel incredibly old. You were born on the, when Betty Davis's Eyes was the number one song. Oh yeah, eighty one, July thirteenth, nineteen eighty one. Yeah, <laughs> I looked up when you said that. I looked at mine and I forget now. Tom, do you, I, I, do you mind sharing your age? When were you born? Or you don't have to say if you don't want 1904. to. Nineteen oh four. Okay, I was born in sixty eight, so I looked at mine and I forget what it was because I wanted to compare and I forget. But but I saw that interview. You did another interview. I think it was with Virgin Radio, and it was a really good interview, uh, Michael, that you did. And one and you talked about the story a little bit. And one of the things that you said was nothing in life comes e- easy, and you know that's good in life, and doesn't come easy. Now, even with that story that you just told us, that might, from the outsider looking in, that might sound easy. Oh, you you, you ran into this, you ran into this, and you ran into this. That sounds easy. But then, okay, that's just a door opening. Now you got to work. In life, I find it's either you can work your ass off to get somewhere, then have a gravy train, or you can have a gravy gravy train, but then you still got to work your ass off to keep that gravy train. Does that sound does that sound somewhat right? Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I, I'm telling you the highlights of those moments, right? You know, but there, right. but but there was maybe 15 years of writing music. You know, I'll, I'll tell you this: the first time I was ever on stage in my sort of um, Oh, not not as a child, but I was not a st- I was not a child actor or anything like that. But you know, when you're a kid, sometimes they make you do stuff. I don't know what in school. Drama. I can't remember doing anything like that. But the first time I was on stage, it was in high school, and we had a, a rap group that we were kind of playing around, my friends and I. 
And I got up on stage and the mic microphones weren't working really well. And I was so embarrassed that I walked off stage oh. and I had my friends chase me and, and try to convince me to go back. And I never went back on stage until maybe seven years later when I started theater school in my 20s. So from and then and then when I started theater school, talk about easy, right? I used to shake like this when I would go in front of, a, of the class and had to perform, when I had to do improv class. I wasn't sh particularly shy in, in life, but the moment I was exposed like that, the moment I was intimately exposed, I would literally shake and I couldn't get over it in school. I, my voice would start cracking and it'd start going real deep. And the teacher's like, this is theater, you gotta project, we can't hear what you're saying. So what I started doing, I was taking, I was reading a lot of spiritual books at the time. So I started take, memorizing Shakespeare monologues. I love Shakespeare so much. And I'd, I'd memorize Shakespeare monologues, I'd, but I'd, I'd have them in my book, right? I'd sit in the subway station in the morning and I would be reading it in a, in a kind of quiet whisper, you know, minding my own business and sort of to myself and then suddenly get up very slowly and change seats. And the person next to me would look, why did I change <laughs> seats? And then I would do it again and change seats after a stop or two. And I was so intimidated by the fact that everybody in the subway was looking at me like a crazy person. But I thought to myself, here, here I am doing nothing that's not, nothing bad, right? If I can get over that fear of not doing anything bad, then maybe I, I can go on stage and perform. And I started doing exercises like this. I'd put like a... I'd put it, I'd put an objective, you know, like today on the subway, I have to approach somebody and start a conversation. No matter what I did, I just had to go and, and just say hello and be nice and, and be very open about the fact that I'm, if they ask me to be open about the idea that I'm, I'm doing this to get over stage fright. But it, it was stuff like that, that gets you through, you know, one, one thing after the other, after the other. And then sometimes think might, might seem easy, but um, you know, my audition for Better Call Saul, for example, was filled with obstacles I had to overcome. Can well, you, you know, talk about that, that uh, coming to audition and, and what that was like in front of the uh, Sony executives and uh, meeting Peter and Vince for the first time? Um, it, it was crazy, man. I was I was I was having the best year of my life in, in professionally in Canada. I had two CSA nominations for Orphan Black and CSAs are like the Emmy Oscars in Canada, right? Yeah. We, they're together. And so I had one Orphan, for, Orphan Black was one of the one of the reasons we we locked onto you. I was a fan of that show, and we watched the, the show, and uh, we, we were really we were really interested in you as an actor from that moment. So that uh, oh, thank you really opened the door for uh, exposing you to us. Were you attracted to me right away, Thomas? Immediately, yeah. I finished <laughs> real early. Is uh, that where our love fest started? Yes. <laughs> so I, I was coming off of the best year professionally of my life, being nominated twice in the same year, not even knowing what the CSAs were. You know, at the time, I, I didn't have a publicist. I didn't know what the hell that meant. I just got a call all of a sudden, someone saying, you're nominated, and I'm going, what is CSAs? So, but I was also really, really not in a good place. Uh, professionally, in a sense, I had absolutely no money. I was broke as a joke and uh, not a funny one, you know? And I and it was wintertime in Toronto. And I remember, I'll never forget it. I remember speaking to a friend of mine and being in the middle of the de dead of winter, 
turning around to him in the middle of the street, telling him, I won't be here next winter. And he says, what do you mean? I said, I, I, I won't be here next winter. I, I, I just know I won't be here next winter. I go to my father's house and he's watching the last two episodes of Breaking Bad. And I'd never seen Breaking Bad at the time. And I, I don't watch a lot of TV even until now. But I remember sitting through it as I was, you know, kind of making a sandwich or whatever and just kind of watching it. And I remember the name Vince Gilligan would pop at, at the end, you know, right at dead center in the, in the screen. And the name kind of hit me real hard because I was really liking the, the, the episode. I thought these guys were, the actors were fantastic. I thought Brian was amazing. So was Aaron. So was everybody. And I was really breathtaken away by what Brian was doing, you know, I, the, the way he was interpreting his character. And I thought, you know, remember the name Vince Gilligan. I changed agencies because I didn't, I wasn't getting really the work I thought I, I wanted to be getting up coming off of two nominations. Right off, right after I changed agencies, my second audition has the name Vince Gilligan. And I'm going, this isn't possible. I, I don't, I don't tell my dad anything, you know, but I just keep it to myself. I do the audition. I'm incredibly happy with it. My friend leaves. It's nighttime. And I'm playing back the video that we did, and I realized we didn't get any sound. And my agent wants me to send it in the next morning. <laughs> so I've got to call. I've got to find somebody to come read in the morning with me at like 6 in the morning. And I've got to call all these people at like 2 a.m. and try to see who can show up at my place at 6 a.m. to help me tape. So I do a second taping of it, basically. And that's the tape I sent to, um, to you guys. I get a call from um, my agent two weeks later, and she tells me um, it's time to. Uh, they they want to see you for a um, a uh, a screen test. I feel like I've been talking for a while. I think it's time for that's, you guys to start the, the show. <laughs> <laughs> we want to hear from right. you. So, I I it's funny. I'm telling you all this, and I'm reliving it because I forgot about all this. But. Um, <laughs> I, I go to I had never been to the States. I've been to the States once in my life at the time for one day. And it was for this for this little guy here. I went to promote um, Far Cry 3. And I've been to LA for one day and I remember the the um, the the limo driver taking me to the Marvel store and I bought a Scorpion uh, sweater character which I ended up playing in, in Spider-Man. But long story short, I'm in LA. For the real, for this the second time in my life, but for the first time for more than like a day, and the driver is driving me, and he's asking me what what I'm here for, and I tell him I'm I'm here reading for uh you know Breaking Bad and and this and that, and I'll never forget it. Um, he said he looks back and he goes, "Are you famous?" And I go, "No." And he goes, "Do you mind if we take a photo just in case oh, you, wow. get the, uh, <laughs> you, you get the you get the gig?" <laughs> I show up at at at, Sony, at the Sony lot and I'm late, and I my heart is is beating like crazy because I go there's no way they're gonna give me this gig because I didn't because I googled the uh, the Google map right the night before and it said like 15 minutes away but I didn't think LA had traffic and it like, triples the time because I don't know I don't know how it works yep so I'm like I'm about 10 minutes late and I'm running to the lot and the guard stops me. And he goes, where are you going? And I tell him where I'm going. He goes, show him my pass. I start running and he yells out. He goes, no, it's the other way. Oh, no. So I'm like, okay. So I start running the other way and I look at the paved, the paved bricks. You guys know what they are, right? 
What can you you want to tell the audience what they're from? The the bricks and at the Sony lot. The uh, you talking about the uh, the the path? The, which 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 ones are you talking about? Yeah, the, the yeah yeah the the magical little the famous the the Wizard of Oz. Pass? Yes, yes, <laughs> and I, and I'm running, and I'm looking down, and I'm like, "Gee, this looks so familiar." <laughs> As I'm running, I, I think I can't remember who it was, but there was a huge celebrity in a golf cart, and I'm going like, "Where the hell am I?" I walk into the uh, the cafeteria, and they tell me it's all the way to the end, and I get to the end af- behind this cafeteria, and it looks like where they store the brooms. You know, like where they have the storage of like the mops and the brooms. Yeah. And I think to myself, oh, I've been had. I thought they were going to be here and it was going to be like the, the showrunners and stuff. But this is probably like a first or, or, you know, very, very early on audition. I'm waiting outside. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. I'm waiting. And then I think the guy who comes from before me is a blonde, blue eyed guy uh, with a big smile by the name of Patrick Fabian. Oh, right on. <laughs> and he's got a big smile, he's super friendly, and they introduce me to him and we shake hands and he walks out and I walk in. And I remember after doing the, my, my nerves were like shot to the max. And I can't remember what the first take was like, but I remember coming in with so much energy. You know, it was like so like, it was like, I, I just remember coming in and going like, I'm going to give everything, everything, everything I had to, and, and it wasn't particularly like a, a big screaming text or whatever. I just felt like I wanted to come in and like knock it out. And I remember Vince Gilligan after the take come up to me and very quietly say, uh, this guy would not squash a bug with a sledgehammer. And I remember thinking, you know, cause I had just watched couple episodes of Breaking Bad and I knew how smart the show was and I I took that to heart you know I I said to myself that's a that that means a lot I gotta I gotta take that and do a lot with it so I do the audition a few times they seem to be happy with it I shake everybody's hands and I've told this story before but I I get to the doorknob and I put my hand on the doorknob and I feel this giant hand reach out and touch my shoulder and I turn around and it's Vince Gilligan. For those who don't know, Vince is a pretty tall guy. And he just puts his hand on my shoulder. I look at him and I leave. And from the moment I got out of that audition to the moment I took the plane to the moment I landed to two weeks later after I got the call, I kept thinking to myself, what did that hand gesture mean? You know, was it like, I choose you? Or was it like, Get better luck next time? <laughs> you know what I mean? I think he was trying to get you back to his hotel room. Yeah. Yes, that's what, that's what I was hoping. There you go. <laughs> what an amazing story. And I, I'm just going to jump over to the chat just for a quick second because we've got some super chats coming in. And you've probably seen this fellow on, uh, well, I'm not sure if it's a, a man or a woman. It's it's mysterious. But the Saul Goodman Twitter, um, very, very popular on, on Twitter, says, is it safe to say... And this is this could be a question for uh, a fan question for for Michael and uh, insider's question for Tom. And I know he can't elaborate to everything as well, but we'll just hypothesize here. Is it safe to say that the Saul scene in Breaking Bad? It wasn't me. It was Ignacio. Uh, he's the one. Lalo didn't send you. No, 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 Lalo. Uh, will will that play a huge role in season six? <laughs> And I know you, you're I, asking. I, you're asking I, I honestly can't say anything. Nope, that's about fine. Season six. No, no problem. And, I and, can't, you know, 
And Michael, I mean, that's the, that that line is the whole cr- reason there is an Ignacio Varga and a Lalo in the show, right? Uh, was that line? We thought well, let's let's take this and 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 run with it. And when we started, Saul, we didn't understand what role the cartel played in the world of Jimmy McGill. We, I mean, initially we thought there'd be a lot more cartel. It turned out they went on separate storylines, and, and it really blended more into the Mike Ehrmantraut storyline than Jimmy. But now in season five, they, they crossed over in a big way. So it was, it was great to start Nacho and Jimmy off together, then separate them for a long time and then bring them back together in season five. It was a long time for them to be apart, but uh, I think it, it paid off. And look at that too. I mean, having just that one little bit of dialogue, you know, having those two characters named and look who we have now, right? Both of these fine, very talented actors uh, and characters that you know they're they're like a, a fire and and gasoline a match and gasoline over here just waiting to explode when you put them together. But here's another good question as well too. Uh, this is from Eamon, and I, I know this and this is uh, more this is more from Michael, and this is a tough question. Um, and I know you guys and and the guys and girls and the whole cast and crew are all a big family and you love each other to death. But he says, and he him and his wife are big fans. Straight away, question for Michael. People say that you walk away from a show like this with at least one longtime friend. Who have you become inseparable with? Oh, I like Thomas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you guys like each other too much. I like Thomas. No, you know what? We've all been friends. We've all become friends. I, 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 um, I get along really well with Bob. You know, I, um, Bob and I text each other and call each other often, very, very often. And um, I've asked Bob a lot of advice, you know, because for me, it was the first time in my life being on a show for more than like a, you know, on Orphan Black, I was more a recurring and I wasn't, I was going to die in the first season. I wasn't, I've never had the concept of being on a show multiple years. It's some, it was completely new to me and I was completely new to America, even though I've traveled around the world. And Bob and I, I think philosophically hit it off really quick. We, 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 um, we, uh, we, we don't think alike, but I think we are very compatible in the way we communicate about certain topics. And, um, and so I would say Bob is someone I, I keep in touch with often. Patrick Fabian is someone I like, I keep in touch with often. And everybody else, I mean, Jonathan Banks, Giancarlo, uh, Ray, they all called me, you know, um, when my father, my father passed away and we, we talked to all of them. And uh, even Peter, you know, Peter and I um, talk and, and our friends and, and everybody, Heather, uh, a writer, you know. So uh, uh, Gordon, you know, everybody, we, I keep in touch with them from time to time and we text each other. I think when you're on a show where where everybody uh, brings their A game and everybody is trying to give the best of themselves, it automatically creates a sort of respect and a camaraderie between everybody and an understanding that um, we're kind of all in on, on we're all in this together, and that and that creates a friendship as well. Well, beautiful answer, and this is a fun question as well too. Blazy Gardner says. Uh, Nacho drives uh, an awesome AMC Javelin. What would your dream car be? And before you answer that question, I watched a, that very brief interview, uh, what's the eight-minute interview with Brian Cranston on Fallon the other night, and he was talking about, um, you know, it, uh, he asked him, do you have your hat and glasses, right? And so, you know, he's got he's got the the fedora and the glasses in his little glass case, and, and Jimmy Fallon says, did they, did they give it to you? And he says, yeah, yeah, they gave it to me. And I was going to actually lead up to then ask you as well, too. You're going to try to lobby to get that car. Uh, but anyways, <laughs> I, know, I know that's probably a far stretch, but she's asking, what would your dream car be? Oh, man, I, can't, I don't know what my dream car would be. I can tell you what my first car was. My first car was a red Jeep Cherokee. 
And everybody knew where I was because it would break down in the streets. <laughs> and everyone would call, would page me at the time or talk to me the next day at school and say, hey, were you on the corner of, I, I saw your car with the hood and the smoke coming out. And that car would break down every every corner I went. Dream car, I don't know. I've, I've driven a bunch of nice cars. Um, my dad had nice cars. My brothers had nice cars. But I don't know. I, I don't think I have like a particular... Um, toy like that i don't think it's i, I don't think I'm, I'm that type you know I, I love cars i love nice gadgets but i drive a prius <laughs> there you go well you, if you keep talking if you keep because talking it's economical and i'm going like you know and i'm going like this thing and i can drive 11 hours from albuquerque to la with dig no gas it's it's uh, michael you, you make anything sexy it's okay i'm sure prius is cool <laughs> yeah it's, but it's may, maybe your... eventually i'll buy a helicopter like vince you know <laughs> you talk you talk about your dad i know what a tremendous influence your dad was on your life and how important um what about acting influences can you talk about who inspired you to make this because i know you were music first but then you went into acting so who who uh who did you look up to who did you who, did you, who made you make who helped you make that choice my path yeah it was a weird it was very 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 weird um i went through two very life-changing events. The first one, um, my mother was shot in a robbery and paralyzed from the waist down. Oh. And then a couple of months after that, I was shot in my knee in a fight. And you put those two events, I was, at the time I was in university, I was studying. I thought I would be, I thought I'd, I did everything at the time. I studied psychology. I left. I studied economy. I studied film editing, believe it or not. And then I studied, at the, and then I was studying international relations. And, I, and then I thought maybe I'd be a French teacher. I, I, I really didn't know what to do, you know. When those two things happened, I started thinking. I took some time off of school. I was limping. The, the, there was a possibility that they were going to cut off my leg. Anyway, that's a whole other story. But my mind was going a mile a minute at the time, and I was thinking about life and the meaning of life and all that stuff and reading all these great spiritual books. And I remember I was with a girlfriend of mine at the time. Her name was Alicia Jessler. And if she's, I don't think she's listening, but if she is, she, she's such a dear, dear person to me. And I was returning movies at the Blockbuster. And she said to me, Michael, if you could do anything, what would you do? And I said, I don't know. And she said, anything at all, what would you do? I said, I don't know. We were on the corner in Montreal, right in front of the Blockbuster. I was returning the movie Heat, you know, with De Niro and, oh, yeah. uh, and Pacino. And she said, just anything, anything, what would you do? I said, I don't know. She says, what do you like? I said, I don't know. I, I like watching movies. And she says to me, why don't you be an actor? I was 22. And I started, I looked at her like, you are so silly. Like, you're <laughs> so silly. What are you talking about being an actor? Like, where did you, where did, and she's like, Michael, you, you could be a great actor. You'd be a great actor. I think you should be an actor. And I go, Alicia, like, I know you you love me, but I think you're I think you think too much of of me and of this. You don't just snap your fingers and become an actor. Long story short, Alicia and I end up breaking up. A couple of months later, it's my birthday, and I'm I have a book on my on the on the on a bar. I'm at a bar with my brothers and a book called The Prophecy of the Antils, and it's about everything in 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 the universe is synchronized and happens for a reason. And my brother calls in friends that he saw uh, passing on the window and these friends come in and one of them is an actress and she says they're trying to cast 
a streetcar named Desire, but they, they're having trouble finding the right match. And at the time, I was more muscular than I am now, and, and I was wearing a white T-shirt, and I didn't know who Marlon Brando was. And she's like, you know what? You, 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 you might make a good uh, Stanley Kowalski. Uh, and I go, really? And she goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe you should uh, think about being as a joke, right? She's going, maybe you should be an actor. I go, it's funny you said that. So she gives me the phone number of her, of her chair at the, at the theater school, and I lose it, and I don't think about it. And I, cry, and I see her again at a club. I've never seen this girl in my life, and I'm working at a club. I used to be a bouncer, uh, a security, um, the head of security at a bar called Stereo in Montreal. It was a bar before the after hours. And she shows up, and she's like, you never called. I go, yeah, I, I, I didn't think you were serious. She goes, no, no, come Thursday and uh, audition, meet the, the chairman, Stephen Lecky. Of course I wasn't going to go. <laughs> but Thursday, I had a friend come in from Ottawa. His name was Ziad, and he was a taxi driver, young guy who was a taxi driver who wants to be an actor. And he says to me, please, man, take me to that teacher. I want to meet him. We go to the, to, the, to, the, to the teacher. We both meet him, and I end up going and doing the audition, and my friend doesn't. And that's really how, how, how I got into, into, into acting. And at the time, I didn't have any actors that I, that I looked up to. You know, it was just... I, I, I liked a lot of actors, but there wasn't one particular actor. But when I got into theater school, I remember I wanted to quit. I, I, I was doing really good at school, but it felt weird to me that they would turn off the lights and watch me live. It was the, my first experience on stage was like a out of body experience where I could hear people coughing and whispering and eating and breathing and moving. <laughs> And, and, and I, had, I had this weird paranoia sense that the world was watching me. And, and, I, and I said to myself, but they are. Like, they're actually really all watching you. You're the only person on stage. And everything you're doing is what they're watching. And I, I, I had like a panic attack. And I said, fuck this. I don't want to do this. This is too weird. But I, I remember I wanted to quit. And something told me, don't. I walked out of class saying I was going to use the restroom and I was just going to keep walking and, and never come back. Something, for some reason, I stopped by the, um, the, the library and I looked at this guy that everyone says is great called Marlon Brando. And the only movie that they had in the library was Last Tango in Paris. And his performance in that movie did something to me so profound that I said to myself, if, if, I, if I stick long enough I'll eventually understand what I'm feeling, watching what this guy's doing. And it was the brutal honesty of his psychology, the brutal honesty of who he was and, and, and um, without fear or shame and with poetry of, of, of life. And I, and I thought, you know, this is, this is what I want to do. I, w I want to express myself and my understanding of the world in that way. So I would say Marlon Brando had a really big impact on me in that sense. Wow. Well, the, I tell you, the fans in the community here in the Gilliverse will say the Breaking Bad, Better Call Saul, El Camino uh, universe, I just have the best questions. And I, I learn so much from them just in the chat every week as well, too. I think I'm a fan and I'm schooled all the time. But here's a couple of really good questions as well, too. Uh, someone that interacts with us a lot here. Arabella says, question for Michael. By betraying Lalo, Nacho put himself in danger at the end of season five. Is it because he's sick of the cartel slash Gus Fring, 
or because he wants to protect his father or both? Um, uh, it's interesting. It's an interesting question because um, I don't see it as a betrayal. You know, I, I think Nacho was never on the side of the Salamancas, and I don't think the Salamancas were never ever on the side of Nacho. Unfortunately, in in the a lot of the story, the 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 writing doesn't hit that on the nail every time, so that it leaves it. The audience has to piece it together. But they were never they were never friends, and the um, the the. The, the camaraderie that Lalo demonstrates in the final episode is really a show. It it looks like a betrayal because there was like Nacho kind of wasn't in the show for like seven episodes and then he shows up and that's what you see and that's mm. that's how it looks. But it, I didn't see it as a betrayal. I saw it as a guy who really did not want to be around sociopaths and didn't want to be around psychopaths and didn't want to be around um, people who who killed for a living and, and took pleasure in killing. And, um, and I think he, in his mind, he did the right choice. You know, it was just the idea of, I'm going to let these two guys fight it out. I'm done. I'm out. I did everything I needed to do. And I went beyond the call of duty. So I think he did it um, first and foremost because of the love of his father. But I think deeper than that, he did it for himself. He did it because he believes um, that's not the way to live. That's not the right way to live. I don't, I don't want to be, I don't think that's what manhood should be. I don't believe in the machismo mentality. I don't think innocent people should die. I don't think uh, drugs is a good business to be in. And 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 he decides, I, I mean, that's the decisions he makes. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, the, those guys end up killing some semi-innocent people. And that is um, very, very unfortunate. But I, but that's not, I think that's on the guys Gus hired. You know, that's on, yeah. that should be on Gus's conscience to some degree. And I guess Nacho is should. I personally felt horrible about that. I, as an actor, I, I I thought that was fuck. I, I was like, man, is there a way not to have that happen? Because it it felt like um, everything I was trying to prevent as Nacho was the saving innocent people, which is my father. Mm -hmm. And by trying to get out, unfortunately, these people who are not a hundred percent innocent because they are on the payroll and they're they're loving the cartel life and the cartel money. But they weren't armed, you know. They they didn't deserve to die, and that's an unfortunate um, incident. Well, that's the thing. Once you start taking a cut, just go back a little further. When you know Mike's talking to Price for the first time, you know, and he's going there as a bodyguard, basically, and he's like, "Well, I'm not a criminal. Well, you're 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 taking money for an illegal activity, and now you've entered that. You're in the game now, right? But here's a further question as well. You kind of answered a lot of that. This is from Pinterest fail mom. So it says Ignacio seems to be a pretty moral guy from a good family. What do you think was his was his original attraction to the cartel, and why did they get involved in the first place? Well, I mean, his mother's not around, right? And and there's no photo of his mother anywhere in the house. So, a, a man as loving as as Nacho's father, um, that sounds that's a bit weird, you know. To me, it's a bit strange. It I think it says that there's something there for me anyway. I, that's how I look at it. Because a, a man that respectful, if his mother died, his wife died, there would be pictures of it. And if there's no picture of it, it means that they're probably on very, very bad terms. And Nacho decided to stay with his father. So I feel somewhere along the lines, maybe as a teenager, the, the divorce between his parents caused him to feel that he needed to lift his father up. 
And by lifting his father up, maybe he thought if, if I was to bring in shiny things, then me and my family would have value and my mother would be proven wrong. That's just the way I see it. I mean, I could be totally wrong about this. This is more of Vince and Peter question. I don't know if we'll ever answer it, but that's the way I saw it. I saw it as a guy who who um, probably looks a little bit more like his mother than his father and who probably thinks that, you know, I'm going to I'm going to make something of me and I'm going to make something of my dad and and we're going to be shiny and powerful and we're going to show her that my father's kindness is not a weakness. So he goes and he hangs out with kids who he thought had everything going for them. And as he as he starts hanging out with them, he realizes that these people are willing to kill him. You know, they 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 shoot his friend in front of him, they blow his skull off, and he's got a piece of skull on, under his skin, yeah. and he's got no choice but to turn against Tuco because he feels like Tuco's gonna kill him really, really soon, and that he's trying to reason with Tuco, but it's like you can't reason with him. And that just starts pulling him in deeper and deeper and deeper and starts making him and the deeper he goes, the more he realizes how far he's gone from himself and and the the very thing that he was trying to protect, which was his father. He loved his father so much that he wanted to protect his father from his mother. And by protecting his father from his mother, I think he kind of became like his mother, trying to get shiny, trying to get, you know, power and the shine and the and all that stuff and realizes it's a it's a loophole. And the only way to do it is just to split, just to get out. Don't don't look for their approval. Very well yeah, seen. I think right from the very from season one, from Notch's very first episode, he was always trying to get find a way out of the cartel. When he visits Jimmy in his office at the end of that episode, and he has this plan to kidnap the Kettlemans to get money. He's trying to finance his way out of the cartel, um, and everything he does from season one on is always trying to break away. But as the more he tries to break away, the sink the deeper he sinks into that quicksand of of Salamanca and, and Fring and just, he can't, he's trying hard to get out. So it's a, uh, that's what, that's why I love watching about the character and what you do with it. It's uh, you really feel the emotion, the struggle. You do. Uh, and here's, here's my, Oh, there's a struggle. There it is. He feels it too. <laughs> Here, here's the kind of, Oh, look at him. He's jacked. Look, look at him. He's got all these muscles going on. Oh, wow. <laughs> Birthday. Do you say they're day two, right? But uh, yeah. And you know, I, I used to think, I remember Peter and I had a conversation about a week or two ago and I told him, you know, when when my father passed and it, it's funny because you can't compare life to art or art to life. And, and oh, look at this guy. Look at him. Let him come. He's such a cute kid. Well, you can't compare life to art or art to life. But at the same time, you should. I, I think you should, because I think that's where you you're at your best when you try to understand your life and apply it in your art and try to understand your art and see how it can benefit your life. I think it's a dialogue between the two. When my father passed, I I couldn't help, you know, a week or two later to think of Nacho and think of what did I what did I learn from this? What do I feel now that I didn't understand before? And I remember thinking that Nacho's biggest weakness was the love he had for his father. And I thought this guy is being manipulated and bullied and treated like nothing from these men who are you know really like you know bullying him in every way even by their body language by the way they all these guys are all acting like like he's nothing in front of him because he has this thing that he loves his father and he doesn't want anything bad to happen to his father when my father passed i realized you know 
that love is actually a power because I thought Nacho's actually willing to take all that shit that none of those guys could could take. He's willing to just, you know, kind of push it all down and say, I don't give a shit as long as this thing that I love is protected. So I think that's how it changed me. I, I realized love is a power. It's not a weakness. And it grows with death. You know, I love my father more than I ever thought I could when he was alive. And after he passed, I, I love him in ways that I didn't even know possible. And, and I understand him in ways I don't even know possible. So I, I want to say lo love is not a weakness. It's a, it's a, it's a power. And, and um, I'm glad I understood that. And um, that, for me, changes the character a little bit going into season six. Well, very well said. And for someone like myself who, who has lost both of our my parents as well, too, sincere condolences uh, for the loss of your dad, I know. Sure. Yeah, very close, very close. It's life, man. I, 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 don't, I don't look at it as something um, that someone should pity or that I, I'm not, I don't look for sympathy in that regards. I just think it's life, you know, I'm, I'm going to die and everyone's going to die. And it's good to just, you know, kind of be aware of that. I think it helps you live better. Agreed. Here's here's a, a comic a comic relief for us for a moment. Uh, Will McCrabb says, not so much of a question, but a statement. I know Tom is not wearing any pants. Thank you. <laughs> well, me neither. Me neither. Okay. All right. There you go. Uh, there's a couple other super chat <laughs> questions. You, Will. Yeah. Are you wearing underwear though, Thomas? No. <laughs> yeah, me neither. Be silly. There's, there's been times I've I've done some shows here that I've been in boxers and things of the nature, but uh, we'll we'll leave that alone. And then someone says, "Oh, Eric, go back and grab that guitar," and you're like, "Oh shit." You know, you don't think about <laughs> yeah. that, right? Uh, Super Chats from the Saul Goodman Twitter. What is it like working? This could be for both of you. One one as a writer and producer, working with a gentleman and someone who spends a lot of time with him specifically. Uh, what's it like working with, and this is again from Saul Goodman, uh, what's it like working with Jonathan Banks? That's for both of you. <laughs> is he a tough son of a bitch or what? I've been talking what? a lot. I've been talking a lot, Thomas. Go oh, for you it. Go, you go, Tom. That, didn't I talk about that a-hole last week? A little bit, a little no. bit. You can allude to it for a second. <laughs> no, John, I mean, I've been a fan of Jonathan Banks since uh, the uh, since he was on Wise Guy. We were, we were, you know, Vince and I were fans in college. We would, we'd watch Wise Guy, and uh, we we loved we loved him then. And then uh, I was not on Breaking Bad when Vince hired him, but I got to meet him at uh, Vince one of Vince's birthday parties, and he was there. And uh, he, we, you know, the character developed. He's he's great, even when he's. Uh, calling me the little prince on set, you know, it's <laughs> it's it's great to work with him. That's awesome. Um, we have a, a, a few other Super Chat questions. We always promise people, too, if they do the Super Chats, which we'll see their names a lot faster, and we try to acknowledge those for sure. Uh, a couple other ones that have come through. Uh, Metalhead uh, Hippie says, good stuff, guys. Thank you. More of a statement. And, Tom, I'm not sure how much you get involved in the marketing side of the business. Uh, you may know or you may not know, but uh, Super Chat from Sean Gambrel. Is there any news on the Season 5 Blu-ray? Any speculation that you've heard, rumors, or anything like that? I have no knowledge, but we have been recording the uh, Blu-ray commentary tracks at home over over uh, Zoom or whatever method we're using. I forget okay. which one, but we're we're right in the middle of doing commentary tracks for those. I don't know when it will be released. They're usually released close to the air date of the next season, so we don't know when that is. So 
I wish I had a better answer. No problem. That's okay. And I guess you could always uh, tag Better Call Saul on Twitter and ask them. And sometimes, too, there's, they have hype for that kind of stuff. So they may not want to say until it's ready as well, too. But you could always try. And the worst thing, the worst thing that could happen is they don't answer you back. Uh, here's another question, too. I had this one written down. This is one of our new followers. Uh, an interesting name. Super Chat from Urban Fucks. Uh, describe your perfect Sunday morning to Michael. And I, I could just imagine. I mean, you're Canadian. I could picture a really good answer. A Sunday morning. My perfect Sunday morning? Yeah. You know, I, I think that's I think that's a good question. I, I I need to think about that more. I don't have any stability in my life in that sense. I I can't tell when Sunday is or what Sunday's like. Um, so I don't have a perfect Sunday, but I I think I should I should have one. Um, if I was to just say right now, I, I really can't think of what a perfect Sunday would be. I can I can tell you what a perfect relaxing day could be like. Sure. Um, I actually even can't say that. Put your put your phone on airplane mode. <laughs> I don't have like I don't have like a routine thing that I'm like that would be perfect. Yeah. Not well, at this point, yeah. Just above ground is good, right? Yeah. 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 I like I like waking up in the morning and feeling the wind. It's actually really hot in here. It got a lot hotter, but I love the wind in the morning. If if anything, Sunday Sunday morning breeze is something cool. Hey, there hey buddy. That's Teddy. Up, hey Teddy. Oh my god. <laughs> He's trying to dress he like said, Daddy. Don't let him Every, see me. Everybody in the world can see you, Teddy. You're on the internet right You're now, on, and it's live. Right. He's dressed, online, dressing just like no. Dad. <laughs> he he just got it for his birthday. He got a new uh, Fender uh, Fender uh, Squire guitar. Nice. Very excited. Yeah, we're running out, running out of time, Michael. We better show your. Yeah, I uh, want to show. So this is a gift from a, a gentleman called Pierre Francois. I, I showed you guys. Somebody wants to read the letter. You could read it after or take a screenshot he wrote me a, a really really beautiful letter from brazil and you get a lot of fan gifts but this one is 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 one of the most um beautiful and impressive written letter that i've ever read um and uh, gentlemen very classy gentlemen so i'm gonna open this for you guys so this is a gift that he made and sculpted he made the box and everything wow and uh, a very talented guy and this is the, um, it's, it's a big statue of, uh, of the one and only uh, Nacho. Oh, and, man. And it's, it's really, awesome. it's really cool and really well done. And so I just wanted to give a shout out to Pierre. I Thank wish we so were much. talking to that for the past hour instead of you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so thank you for, uh, for that, Pierre. Yeah, and that, great then. job. Yeah, Pierre Francois, you guys should check him out. He's a great artist. What an incredible piece of work. Here, here's one more super chat. And this this comes from a channel. I love this channel. It's from Super uh, Chat Race Grooves. And Tom, you should show your kids this one. It's really cool. They, they do like Hot Wheels stuff and all kinds of cool stuff on their on their channel. They've got like almost a million subscribers on the channel. And uh, they ask a question, which of these experienced actors are more tolerant of a long conversation? Mark Margolis as Hector Salamanca or Jonathan Banks as Mike Ermintrout? Who, who will sit there and let you gab yeah, their ears off? More so than the other. Or maybe both the same. Is that You're asking me or Thomas? Yeah. No, I'm asking you. Oh, who would who would uh, who would you talk? Oh my God, Hector or Mike? Uh, that's a tough question. It, <laughs> it depends. It's it's pockets. It's moments. You know, I've had I've had one real one or two really great long talks with Mark, where he was talking to us about Scarface and Pacino and all that stuff, and it was really fun. And I've had a a, a lot of nice conversations with Banks as well. 
Banks gave me an advice, I think, in season two or three that I always say because I think every young actor or young person should hear it. I remember we were doing a, a, a scene and uh, the director year cut and Jonathan said, come here, kid, I want to talk to you. And we were in the, the studios where they shot Breaking Bad and you could feel I was still new to the show. I could be like, holy shit, here I am talking to Jonathan Banks where they shot this show and it's crazy. And he says, listen, kid, I know you're good. The writers know you're good. The producer and the director and the crew knows you're good. But you don't know you're good. And until you believe you're good, you're never going to sleep at night. And don't wait till you're 70. And that's it. That was his advice. It kind of gave me a little tap on the shoulder and went to his trailer. <laughs> and, um, and I was just like, okay, now how do, you, how, do you, how do you get that? It's not arrogance. It's confidence. It's the belief that you, your voice matters, that you've, you've earned where you are and that you have a responsibility to, to give the best of yourself without the negativity of beating yourself up every day and every night for everything you do. And that was uh, that's what it's like being with guys who've been acting almost twice as long as you've been alive, you know? Yeah. That's he's right. old. He's super old. No, I mean experience. I don't mean it like that. Look no, he's all. I'm telling you, he's, he's, I'll, I'll never work with anyone older than him. There you go. <laughs> I, I like the scene when, when, uh, well, I, I'm not necessarily like the scene, but when, when, uh, Walter White took him out and you see the behind the scenes things. And I remember seeing Brian Cranston like, I'm so glad we shot, we took, we killed you or whatever. It was, you know, just that dynamic between the two of them. And he was really broken up over that, wasn't he? That was a tough day on set. That was a hard day. He, he, he's a, you know, he plays a tough guy, but he cried a lot that whole week. That was my first directing episode. And he, uh, he, you know, he, he was, it was hard to go. Yeah. It was hard to leave the show. What were, and, what? uh, and, but you know, as in, our world all the time. These characters come back, and here is Mike Ehrmantraut back on Better Call Saul. And you know, a lot of times we'll we'll let a character go, and uh, he returns. But jumping in time all the time, you could do that. Do you remember the the conversation when he was told he's going to be back as Mike? Did, was, did, was he elated over that? I wasn't part of that. I, I wasn't part of that initial conversation. That was uh, that was all Vince and Peter, right? Awesome. Well, a couple other super chats. Shawshank says, love this conversation so much. God bless, guys. And uh, Justin is crying in the chat that doesn't want it to end. That's the thing. You know, these things are so much fun, but they always come to an end. And we're just a couple of minutes away. I, I know it's, a, it's a, an extreme pleasure. It's a, the opportunity to do this with Tom is great because, like I say, Tom brings the writer, director, producer, uh, you know, element to the show. I'm a fan uh, with a microphone and I just love it. And getting the opportunity to talk to these wonderful cast and crew and it's such a family, not only in the cast and crew with you guys and girls out there, but the, the audience as we're seeing here as well, Michael it's a pleasure to not only talk to another fellow Canadian this evening, but a huge fan. You got to meet my son off air. He's a fan. Uh, we share all the love of the show together. Um, Tom, thank you for another great evening tonight and, and uh, putting up with two Canadians tonight. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for it was hard. Me. Thank you for having it was hard, me, guys. But, uh, it, and thank uh, you to all, and thank you to all the fans. Two hours Sorry, easily. Thomas, Mike, go on. Mike's got a lot of great stories. I wish I wish you could have told us uh, meeting De Niro at the Emmy story, but maybe we'll save that for another time. Yeah, Michael, you have an open invitation. Yeah, Michael, we're... stay hydrated. They're right. I'm sweating like crazy. Yeah, I'm reading the fans <laughs> here, guys. Thank you for uh, for all the um, for all the love and for watching and. Eric, thank you for having me. And Thomas, thank you for the great conversations. And look at it. They're miss steady. You. I miss hey, you. buddy. Look, look. We, we, got, we got some camera. The camera. Look, at, <laughs> look at this future superstar over here. There they are. <laughs> hey, 
<laughs> hey, buddy. <laughs> what an entrance. This is Jack. Uh, say hi, Jack. Oh, you don't want to say hi, Jack, on the air. Hey, buddy. <laughs> we have to, if you're gonna say if you're gonna say those two words on the air, you have to put a pause between the two. Hi. Oh, wait a second or two, and then Jack. You can't say them together real fast because then it might set off a flag or something. No, it's awesome. But Michael, I will extend an open invitation to you if you know when time permits. You everyone come back and continue on the stories. Uh, next week we're gonna have some crazy fun. I'm not sure, Michael, if you know about this, but we're gonna have a Kettleman reunion next next Friday. Oh, Betsy and oh, Craig, wow. we're going to find okay. out if Craig's out of jail. We don't know what Betsy's doing. She's, I don't know if she's come down from Cougarland or whatever. Uh, we don't know. Julianne, she's wonderful. They're both wonderful. We're going to have a great show. Tune in. Tune in next week. I'm going to try to do I'm going to tune in as well. Awesome. We appreciate that. Listen, don't go away. We're going to say goodbye to you off the air. Everyone out there, please have a All safe right. weekend. Be safe out there. Wear a mask. If, you, if that's your thing, please be safe and uh, let's get this better. So as we said last week, all these people here want to get back to work and make a great season six. And the sooner it's safe, the sooner they can get back, the sooner everyone gets back to work and the sooner we can consume this great content. And we hope to see that we get an award for Thomas here as well too. Yes. Yes. Let's let's bring it. Let's bring that Emmy home, all right? And for uh, for uh, Giancarlo Esposito as well too, and all the uh, uh, Gordon as well. All these people that are nominated, it'd be fantastic. Uh, and yeah, we're gonna talk to you real soon. I'm gonna hang up right now, but don't leave, everyone. See you soon next Friday night. Bye, everyone. Bye, guys. Take care. Cheers. Thanks again for tuning in to Inside the Gillivers with Tom and Eric. Be sure to check back each week for more great discussions and interviews with cast and crew from Breaking Bad, El Camino, and Better Call Saul. 